Case three really focuses on what um, we would call popular natural history. So the books that I've put chosen for display there, um, a number of them are what's called shilling natural history handbooks. So um, during the middle decades of the 19th century, the Rutledge firm recognized they had already been publishing books in their railway series, um, so books that you could read while you were um, traveling by train, but they recognized that there was an additional market that could be tapped into, and this was um, sort of the um, associated development is the expansion of the railway during this period, and then the instituting, again, sort of in these middle decades, of a half holiday on Saturdays for many middle-class workers. So Rutledge recognized that there was this market for um, people who might be interested in natural history, might have half a Saturday, might take a train ride, um, you know, to sort of a nearby, more natural locale out of the city. And they published this series of shilling natural history books. There had already been shilling science lectures that you could attend. So for shilling, you could hear a lecture on, um, you know, um, entomology. You also have the rise of Schilling Days at the, or the Institute of Schilling Days at the Great Natural, Great Exhibition. So this kind of prolifer, it was a natural move for a publisher than to say Schilling handbooks. So these were inexpensive, relatively inexpensive handbooks that came in both um, uh, an addition with plain plates, which meant black and white, and then colored plates for three and six, um, three shillings and six pence. So I've put some examples of these shilling handbooks on display because when we want to talk about the popularity of Victorian natural history, I think we have to look to the least pricey um, items and the ones that most people had in their pockets. So this was an example of where Freeman's collection was quite useful um, because often these um, shilling handbooks, many of them were yellow backs because of the yellow paper that co covered um, their straw uh, boards. They were cheaply produced and so they broke down quite quickly, but it, for, um, for Freeman to have collected some examples has been very valuable because you see the kind of penetration of natural history down, down to the middle ranges of the social scale. And then what Rutledge did, and I have some examples of this, so you, you would have your shilling version of um, Reverend Wood's Objects for the Country. It was a kind of amazingly popular book that in its first edition in the 1850s, it sold 100,000 copies in one week. It's not of high literary merit. Um, it's, it avoids scientific language studiously. It basically just tells you, you know, if you're going to the country, you might find this kind of beetle around this kind of bush. It's that, and take a walk, it gets your mind off of things. That's, it's that kind of book, but amazingly popular. And Rutledge released it um, in its plain plates version, in its colored plates, plates version, and then a, a cloth-bound version with um, a gold-stamped cover. So, you know, just like today, you might have your paperback version of a, a book and then your hardcover. This is what Rutledge was doing with natural history. 